Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. How do we know that the New Testament writers were actually eyewitnesses to Jesus and the resurrection? Today, we're going to go over some impressive evidence that they really were eyewitnesses, and some of this evidence you probably have never heard about. We're going to get into it, but before we do, before we get to that, I want to go back and briefly touch on something related to the topic we covered last week here on this podcast and radio program. Last week, we covered wokeness in our military. And as we pointed out last week, that's a huge mistake. Now, we can't go over all that again right here, right now. Uh, But I do want to read you a poem written by a United States Army man. I don't know his rank or anything, but I think this poem succinctly demonstrates the importance of having an unpoliticized military. And we actually posted this poem on Memorial Day. The man who wrote it is Charles Michael Province. He's, I don't know when he wrote this, but he apparently is employed or was employed by the United States Army. And here's what he wrote. It is the soldier not the minister who has given us freedom of religion. It is the soldier, not the reporter, who has given us freedom of the press. It is the soldier, not the poet, who has given us freedom of speech. It is the soldier, not the campus organizer, who has given us freedom to protest. It is the soldier, not the lawyer, who has given us the right to a fair trial. It is the soldier, not the politician, who has given us the right to vote. It is the soldier who salutes the flag, who serves beneath the flag, and whose coffin is draped by the flag, who allows the protester to burn the flag, unquote. Now, you could say everything that that man just said also about the police. The military and the police are the foundation of everything else we do in a free and prosperous society. Without security, without law enforcement, there's no business, there's no private property, there's no commerce, there's no consistent food supply, there's no consistent energy supply, there's no safety, there's no healthcare, I could go on. Without security provided by the military, provided by police, we would not even have the freedoms that we have today. We wouldn't have the basic conveniences that we have today. We wouldn't have civilization without these people. So at this time, we need to, we need to realize that the people that serve us both in the military and through the police are people that we need to honor. Doesn't mean that every one of them is an honorable person. Doesn't mean they always do a good job. 
because they're fallen people just like the rest of us. And you'll have bad people in the military, bad people in the police force, bad people in business, bad people in religion, bad people in just about any endeavor. But we have to make sure that we honor people and give honor where honor is due. And of course, the Bible talks about this, that we ought to honor the people that govern us, the people that serve us, and without them, there would be no civilization. Do you know in a related story here that Walgreens just closed 17 stores in San Francisco because of rampant theft? Back in 2014, California or that area there in California passed a law which said they were not going to prosecute shoplifting on anything under than, say, $950. Well, duh, what do you think's going to happen? People are just going to walk into stores and walk out with whatever they want. And Walgreens decided, we can't do business here. They closed 17 stores in San Francisco due to the fact that there's no security. There's no law enforcement. You can't do business without security, without law enforcement. You can't make a living without it. In any event, I just wanted to say that that poem there, I think, succinctly demonstrates why uh, we have to honor people who serve us and protect us. Let me now move on to the topic of the day. And again, the topic is, how do we know the New Testament writers were actually eyewitnesses, particularly of what happened to Jesus? And I think the evidence we're going to talk about today you may have not heard of, it actually comes from a book written by the scholar Dr. Richard Baucom called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And before I get into specifically what Baucom talks about, uh, as you know, in our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and also we have a summary chapter on the evidence for Christianity in the book Stealing from God, we go through eight lines of evidence that begin with the letter E that show that the New Testament writers appear to be telling the truth. I'm just going to go through them very quickly here, and then we're going to drill down on this one piece of evidence that Dr. Baucom has brought to bear in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. The first line of evidence we have that the New Testament writers are telling the truth is we have early sources. These documents are written very early. I think most of them are written prior to 70 A.D., and the sources, the source material in the documents goes all the way back to the resurrection itself in some cases. Secondly, we have eyewitness details throughout the text. For example, there's 84 eyewitness details or eyewitness or eyewitness probable eyewitness details in the book of Acts alone, just from chapter 13 to the end of the book, chapter 28. There's 59 such details in the Gospel of John. These details, by the way, are all listed. In I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. The third line of evidence is we have embarrassing stories. We've been through these stories here on this program before. These are stories that wouldn't have been invented. For example, the disciples wouldn't have depicted themselves as cowards, while the women were the brave ones that stayed behind at the crucifixion and discovered the empty tomb. They wouldn't have depicted themselves as dim-witted. They wouldn't have depicted their leader, Peter, as denying Christ three times. All these things are embarrassing. They wouldn't have invented. Number four, we have excruciating deaths. They wouldn't, as Jews who believed in Yahweh, invent a resurrected Jesus that would get them kicked out of the synagogue and then beaten, tortured, and killed. 
They didn't believe somebody in the middle of time could resurrect from the dead. They believed everybody would be resurrected at the end of time, but they didn't think somebody in the middle of time could be resurrected. And they also didn't believe somebody could claim to be God without being a blasphemer. So they wouldn't have invented all this stuff and then went and died for it. Number five, we have embedded confirmation. That deals with what is known as undesigned coincidences. I call it embedded confirmation. Uh, this is really hard to explain in a short period of time, but this is the best evidence you've probably never heard of that the New Testament writers are actually telling us the truth about details, or I should say events they witnessed independent from one another. Just look up undesigned coincidences, and you can go back to some of the podcasts we've had here on this program. Uh, to to listen or read more about that. Number six, we have expected predictions. That deals with Old Testament prophecy. If I only had one Old Testament prophecy to make my case on, it would be Isaiah chapter 53. I might throw Daniel 9 in there as well, written hundreds of years prior to Jesus showing up. Number seven, we have extra biblical writers. These are non-Christian writers that give us little snippets of what happened to Jesus and the apostles. These people were not eyewitnesses, but somehow they got information that is congruent with the New Testament, particularly that disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead and they were willing to die for this belief. We also have the explosive growth of the church, that's number eight, out of Jerusalem, which is really hard to explain how this could happen when the Jews and the Romans, who were enemies of Christianity, could have squashed Christianity right then and there by going to Jesus' tomb and taking out the body. They couldn't do that because apparently Jesus was still using his body. So these are all lines of evidence that the New Testament writers are telling the truth. And when we come back from the break, we're going to drill down on one of them. One of them you probably never heard of that I think is very impressive. My name is Frank Turk. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. I want to mention I'm going to be down in Sarasota, Florida this weekend speaking at the Saturday night service and the three Sunday services at Grace Community Church there in Sarasota. My friend Chip Bennett is the pastor there. Great guy. Looking forward to seeing him and all the great people at Grace Community Church. Just go to our website, crossexamined.org. Click on events. You'll see the calendar there. Uh, hope to see you if you're anywhere near Sarasota. Now, I mentioned those eight lines of evidence that the New Testament writers are telling the truth. We have early sources, eyewitness details, embarrassing stories, excruciating deaths, embedded confirmation, expected predictions, extra biblical writers, and the explosive growth of the church which seems to show that these people are actually talking about events they actually witnessed. And as you know, I, we can't drill down on all of those. I want to drill down on one of them. And the one I want to drill down on is uh, what we call eyewitness details. And the book written by Dr. Richard Balkum, first written, I believe, in 2007, but he just released a second edition a few years ago. The book is called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and let me in, give you in Dr. Bauckham's own words what his book is all about. It's in a paragraph. Here it is. He says this, it is the contention of this book that 
in the period up to the writing of the Gospels, Gospel traditions were connected with named and known eyewitnesses, people who had heard the teachings of Jesus from his lips and committed it to memory, people who had witnessed the events of his ministry, death and resurrection, and themselves had formulated the stories about these events that they told. These eyewitnesses did not merely set going a process of oral transmission that soon went its own way without reference to them, they remain throughout their lifetimes the sources, and in some sense, that may have varied for figures of central or more marginal significance, the authoritative guarantors of the stories they continued to tell. In other words, Dr. Balkum is saying that the people that you read about in the New Testament were people who were eyewitnesses of the events, and until the Gospels were put on papyrus, they kept telling what they had witnessed, and they were the ones that gave the testimony that went down onto onto the papyrus when the Gospels were written. This was not a telephone game story. This was not the telephone game where one person said something to another person and it goes all the way through a whole series of people and by the time it gets to the last person, it's all garbled. That's not how we got the New Testament. In fact, one reviewer of of, uh, Dr. Bauckham's book says this. He says, Bauckham presents a tour de force of argumentation against the 20th century liberal theory of form criticism which theorized that the Gospels were based only on the oral traditions of anonymous communities that developed constantly evolving, free-floating stories about Jesus' life for the purpose of suiting their contemporary needs rather than preserving genuine history. Balkum proposes, instead of a reevaluation of the Gospels in the, as the testimony of the eyewitnesses to Jesus's Ministry. All right, I, I said that wrong. Sorry. <laughs> he said that Balkan proposes instead <laughs> a reevaluation of the Gospels as the testimony of eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry. So, Je- so Balkan is looking back at the Gospels, going, "No, what you're reading in the Gospels contains eyewitness testimony." And in fact, uh, in the preface of of uh, Balkan's book, uh, actually the foreword, the the, the uh, This sentence is stated, this is actually quoted from a guy back in the 1930s, and he says this, if the form critics are right, who are the form critics? These are the people who are saying, well, the way we got our Gospels were through these oral traditions, these oral stories that evolved over time, that it's not really connected to eyewitness testimony, or if it is, it's only loosely connected. So these are the form critics. And uh, here's, here's what the quote from this scholar back in the 30s said. That's in the in the forward to Bauckham's book. If the form critics are right, the disciples must have been translated to heaven immediately after the resurrection, unquote. Yeah, do you see the point here? Why the eyewitnesses are still around. And these eyewitnesses, by the way, were persecuted for saying what they believe. While they are still around, they're going to be the ones that people are going to go to to discover what really happened to Jesus. And those eyewitnesses are not going to allow people to make up stories about Jesus without them at least trying to correct them. So 
The form criticism that says that, well, this all just happened through a series of endless oral transmission that got garbled over the decades. Those people who say that must believe that all the apostles must have died immediately after Jesus resurrected from the dead, and nobody could maintain the story. All the eyewitnesses that are talked about in the documents must have just evaporated for this kind of form criticism to be true. And as I said last week, it seems to me that modern New Testament scholarship uh, tries to, in my view anyway, recreate the past. Instead of taking things at face value, using good scholarship to do so, they come up with all sorts of crazy theories about how we got our New Testament. When if you just look at the reality of it, when you really look at the data, the way we got our New Testament was eyewitnesses saw this stuff and wrote it down. Either that or people like Luke, who knew eyewitnesses, did the research by asking eyewitnesses what they said they saw. And I'll get into that a little bit later in the program if I have time. And it reminds me of the quote we talked about last week, quoting from uh, the a uh, book that Lieutenant, Low, Lieutenant Colonel Lohmeyer had written. He's the guy that got kicked out of the Space Force for saying that the military went woke, or is going woke, I should say. He talks about in his book, the Ministry of Truth in the Soviet Union. The Ministry of Truth deliberately representative uh, of Stalin's communist propaganda mill employed a simple an effective strategy, and here's the strategy, quote, who controls the past controls the future, who controls the president controls the past, unquote. It was this kind of manipulative control in the former Soviet Union that led to the dissident joke. Here's the dissident joke. In the Soviet Union, the future is known. It's the past that's always changing. You get it? Yeah, if we could just change what people think about the past, then we can control the, the future. And what Lohmeyer goes on to say is, thus, all that is needed to assert control is an unending series of victories over people's memory, unquote. We need to change what people think about the past. This is what so many of these, quote, liberal New Testament scholars do, unquote. What they do is they try and change the past. Now, they will say they're trying to get at the past. But in my view, one of the reasons they're not taking the past at face value is because they have an anti-supernatural bias. And they don't want the New Testament to be, to be true because the New Testament brings along moral implications for their own lives. Now, I can't say this is true of all of them. Don't get me wrong. But I, I see that that appears to be one of the motivations for some of these crazy theories they come up with. They don't want it to be true because if it's true, then that impacts them morally. And as we pointed out several times in this program before, an anti-supernatural bias is something that I don't think can be supported. Given what we know about cosmology now and even philosophy, the universe had a beginning. If the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. In other words, the greatest miracle in the Bible is not the resurrection. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. And we now actually have atheists. In fact, a majority of atheists will admit the universe had a beginning. Stephen Hawking famously said that almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Hawking, as you know, tried to come up with another explanation other than God for the 
creation event. He failed, but he's admitting the data that space, time, and matter literally had a beginning out of nothing. Well, if it had a beginning out of nothing, it must have had a beginner. It must have had a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent beginner, a being who's outside the universe because the universe was created. So it can't be something inside the universe. It can't be a natural cause. It must be something outside the universe, a supernatural cause. So if the first verse of the Bible is true, every other verse is at least possible. And for you to say that we can't in any way trust any testimony that has the miraculous in it is, a, is, a, is an anti-supernatural bias that in my view is illegitimate. Because if you don't believe in the supernatural, you ought to look around because you're living in, in the product of a supernatural cause, the universe itself. And if everything, by the way, is just caused by the laws of physics, if there is no, nothing beyond the natural, but everything is driven by natural laws, by natural causes, you shouldn't believe anything you think, including the thought that miracles don't occur. Because the thought that miracles don't occur comes from just the laws of physics. If you don't have a mind, if you're just a brain, if you don't have a soul, if you're just a body, then you shouldn't trust anything you think, including any thought that leads you to atheism. We've talked about this several times on this program before. So this idea that we ought to rule out the supernatural up front and look at with a jaundiced eye at any text that, any, that in any way suggests the supernatural does not comport with the known facts. Now, people will say, what about miracles in other religions? Well, what we ought to do is we ought to, on a case-by-case -case basis, evaluate them. We can't just rule them out in advance. That's true. And we shouldn't rule out miracles uh, as soon as we see them in a New Testament document. They could be true. You're begging the question if you assume they're false right off the bat. The problem here is, is that everybody is searching for the Jesus behind the Gospels when, in fact, the Gospels provide eyewitness accounts of the real historical Jesus, the true Jesus. And the way Bauckham does this in his book, he does it in several ways. The book is 700 pages, so we can't cover it all here. We'll probably cover more of it in future programs because today I'm just going to cover one aspect of it if I can get to it. Um... I'm reading through the second edition right now. I read through most of the first edition when it came out 10 years ago. But the way Balkan does this and points out that there are eyewitness details in the text that only eyewitnesses would know, he does it by the study of names. The study of names in the New Testament and the study of names actually in first century Palestine at the time. It's a fascinating discovery that he's made and we're going to unpack it right after the break you're listening to i don't have enough faith to be an atheist with frank turek on the american family radio network website crossexamined.org app two words in the app store cross examined check it out we're back in just two minutes coming up in August, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA, we only take 60 students or so. If you want to be a part of it, you have to apply by June 15th. What is that? That's just like next week or two weeks from now, 10 days from now, whatever. Sign up by or apply by going to crossexamine.org and click on events. You'll see CIA there. That's where we teach you how to present the evidence for Christianity and how to answer questions in a hostile environment. I'll be your instructor along with Greg Kokel, Jorge Gill, 
Jay Warner Wallace, Natasha Crean, Elisa Childers, Brett Kunkel, uh, several others will be instructors with you there for three full days, August 12th to the 14th, out at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, one of my favorite churches in America, led by the great Jack Hibbs. So I hope to see you out there. If you can squeeze into CIA, you'll need to squeeze in in the next 10 days because the deadline is 25th, is uh, June 15th, and we can only take 60 people. So check it out there. Okay, we're talking today about how Dr. Richard Baucom in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, demonstrates that the New Testament writers must have been eyewitnesses. And this is just one line of evidence out of many. And it has to do with names. And let's do a little fun investigation into names. Uh, let's go back to the 1960s. I was born in uh, 1961. And one of the things that our government does very well, it keeps track of names. And if you go, if you, if you type in DuckDuckGo, <laughs> your search engine there, and you type in names, top names by decade, you'll, you, you, you can search the top names that were given to children in every decade, according to the Social Security Administration. What do you think the top names were given to boys in the decade of the 1960s, from 1960 to 1969? Then we're going to look at the, the last decade, from 2010 to 2019. Okay, here are the top 10 names given by decade or given of two boys in the United States between 1960 and 1969. Number one, Michael. Well, I'm just going to go through the top 10. Michael, David, John, James, Robert, Mark, William, Richard, Thomas, and Jeffrey. Those, are the, those were the top 10 names given between 1960 and 1969. Now, Frank was like number 43. Nobody names their kid Frank, not even in the 60s. Maybe earlier than that, but it's a family name. That's why my name's Frank. Okay, what do you think the top 10 male names were in the decade of 2010 to 2019? You ready? Here they are. Noah, Liam, Jacob, William, Mason, Ethan, Michael, Alexander, James, and Elijah. Now, how do those two lists compare? Three names, uh, three male names in the decade of the 1960s made it to the decade of the 2010s, although they're in different order. Michael, James, and William are in both lists. Everything else is different. The other seven names are all different between the 1960s and the 2010s. In fact, Noah, Liam, and Jacob were the top three names in the 2010s. They were not even in the top 200 names in, 19, in the 1960s. That's how much different the names were just in about 60 years, 50 or 60 years, okay? Now, how about the women? What were the top names for women in the decade of the 1960s, here they are, top 10. Lisa, Mary, Susan, Karen, Kimberly, Patricia, Linda, Donna, Michelle, and Cynthia. Okay, here are the top 10 names for the last decade, 2010 to 2019, for women. You ready? Here they are. Emma, Olivia, Sophia, Isabella, Ava, Mia, Abigail, Emily, Charlotte, and Madison. 
Did you notice? There is no crossover at all. The names are completely different in the top 10 between the decade of the 1960s and the decade of the 2010s. The top three women names in the 1960s, Lisa, Mary, and Susan, hardly appear in the top 200 in the 2010s. In fact, Lisa and Susan don't appear in the top, two, in the top 200, and Mary, which was the second most popular name in the 1960s, in the 2010s, Mary is at 127, right after Kinsley, Trinity, and Brielle. After Trinity, Kinsley, and Brielle. Do you see how much different the names are? In just 50 or 60 years, they change dramatically. You say, what does this all prove, Frank? Well, what Richard Balkum does in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is he does the same sort of thing, except he does it in first century Israel or first century, the area known as Palestine. And here's what he says in his book. What he does is he looks at a lexicon pulled together by a researcher in Israel. Her name is Tal Ailan. And in, in 2002, she looked at manuscripts, you know, papyrus. She looked at ossuaries, which were burial boxes. She looked at inscriptions. She tried to gather as many names as she could from 330 BC to about 200 AD. Although most of the names that she got were from the first century AD uh, up to about the second, early second century to up to about say 135. And um, what may be surprising is that we now know because of her research, we now know as many as 3,000 Palestinian Jews who lived during those five centuries, from 330 BC to about 200 AD. Now, here are the top names in the first, in, in that period, but most of these are from the first century, or majority or a plurality of them are from the first century. The top 10 man names and the top 10 women names, according to this research. Now, you're going to recognize many of these names because you hear about these names in the Bible, and that's the point, okay? Here are the top 10 man names from that period. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, Ananias, Jonathan, Matthew or Matthias, and Manon. Those are the top 10 man names. Top 10 women names. Mary, Salome. Shayla Mizon, hadn't heard that before. Martha, Joanna, Sapphira, Bernice, Emma, Mara, and Cyprus. Those are the top 10 names. Now, here's the interesting thing. This ranking of names is very close to the ranking in the New Testament. Now, back in 2012, I wrote a column on this on our blog, the, the Cross-Examined blog. You can still see it. It's from May 24th, 2012. It's evergreen, okay? Because it, there's, there's, no, there's no current event in here. You can go back and read it, and it's still fresh. And the title of it is, What's in a Name? New Evidence for the Eyewitness Testimony in the New Testament. Let me just sum up some of the things that Balkum found, which you can read about in this blog I wrote back in, in May 24th, 2012. 
because he compared those top 10 names and all those names found in Ilion's lexicon of over 3,000 names, here is what Bauckham concluded. 41% of the men in first century Palestine bore one of the nine most popular male names while 40% of the men in the Gospels and Acts bore one of those names. And he says that's a remarkable correlation. Isn't that amazing? They line up almost, almost exactly. Again, 41% of the names in first century Palestine had one of the top nine most popular names. And in the Gospel and Acts, it's 40%. It's, this, it's almost the same number. And with regard to women, the top or the nine top female names comprised 50% of the females in Palestine, and they comprised 61% of the females in Gospel and, uh, and Acts. So there's a remarkable correlation here. The most common names for Jews living outside of Palestine in the first century were dramatically different than those living in Palestine in the first century. And so they were also different from those found in Gospel and Acts. For example, in Egypt, the second most popular name in Egypt for Jews was Sabbateus, which was 68th in Palestine. So the difference between Israel and Egypt with regard to naming in the first century was that different. The fourth most popular name was tied between Dospheus and Pappus, which were 16th and 39th, respectively, in Palestine. In other words, if you couldn't write the Gospels from Egypt, even in the first century, because you wouldn't know what the names were like, if, I mean, if you're, in other words, if you're making all this up, if you're trying to invent all this, you can't invent it unless you're in Palestine at the time, in Israel at the time, and then why would you invent it if you're there at the time? Because by inventing it, you're getting yourselves beaten, tortured, and killed. That would make no sense. And if you're outside of Israel, you wouldn't have the knowledge to have the right names in an invented manuscript, in, in kind of a novel. Just like in the 1960s, if you tried to write a novel that was placed in the 2010s and you're writing in the 1960s, you wouldn't be able to know the names would be Noah, Liam, and uh, Jacob. Names that were nowhere on the list in the 1960s. You see the point here that, that Bauckham is making? Also, another point. The names found in the Apocryphal Gospels, these are ones you always hear about from, you know, the Discovery Channel and National Geographic. Oh, we found the Gospel of Judas, and we found the Gospel of Peter, and we found the Gospel of Thomas and Mary and all. They were not written by Judas. They were not written by Mary. They were not written by Thomas or Peter. Why? Because those people had been dead for at least 100 years. They were, they were forgeries. But here's the point. The names found in those apocryphal gospels are not congruent with first century Jewish names in Israel, which is another reason why we know that such gospels were forgeries written much later. In fact, let me point out what a pastor actually said about all this, and it's in the preface of the book. 
Well, actually, I'll get to it right after the break because we're running out of time. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. By the way, if you want to really learn apologetics, you need to go to Southern Evangelical Seminary. If you go to ses.edu forward slash Frank, they're going to give you a discount. Check it out. Go to ses.edu forward slash Frank. I'm Frank Turek, back in two. What's in a name? Apparently quite a bit, according to Dr. Richard Baucom, his fabulous book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, I highly recommend. It's not an easy tome. It's about 700 pages, but it's a great piece of detective work, as N.T. Wright put it. He has really done some original research here, and when you look at the names in the New Testament compared to the names in first century Palestine, the area which would include Jerusalem and include Israel, I should say, Uh, you're going to find remarkable congruence between the names of the New Testament and the names from other sources at the time in that area. And this is not something that could easily be invented. In fact, one pastor who was preaching on Balkum's book, and uh, he said this, and, and this, what he said, actually made it to the foreword of the second edition of the book. He said this, Now, in an amazing and original piece of objective research, Richard Balcom has done the number crunching on the names in the Gospels. And what he has shown is that the names match other documents of the same era in the same location very, very closely. The distribution of the names in the Gospel matches the other sources for the same period and the same place almost exactly, something which is very hard to fake and would be actually Very hard to fake, almost impossible if it was written long after the eyewitnesses and didn't have the same access to them. So this is a glowing review, quite obviously. Here's the way Balkum puts it in in the book, and he puts it much more modestly because he's a scholar. He says this. He says, the names of Palestinian Jews in the gospel and acts coincide very closely with the names of the general population of Jewish Palestine in this period but not to the names of Jews in the areas outside of Israel, like Egypt. In this light, it becomes very unlikely that the names in the Gospels are late accretions to the traditions. Outside Palestine, the appropriate names simply could not have been chosen, unquote. He goes on to say this, all the evidence indicates the general authenticity of the personal names in the Gospels. This underlines the plausibility of the suggestion made in chapter three of this book, and again, his book is called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, as to the significance of of many of these names, that they indicate the eyewitnesses' sources of the individual stories in which they occur. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Hold that thought. What Balkum is saying here is that some of the names in the documents are actually names of the people who, for example, may have told Luke what had happened. I'll get to that. But I want to quote what Craig Hazen said about all this. He teaches over at Biola, as you know. Actually, he heads the apologetics uh, uh, department out there. He said this in an article. It would be as if a person who had never set foot out of California were attempting to write a story about people living in Portugal 60 years ago. And the writer perfectly captured all the details of the personal names of the day without traveling, without the Internet, without encyclopedias or libraries. 
Clearly, guesses and intuitions about Portuguese names from over a half a century earlier are exceedingly unlikely to match the real situation on the ground, unquote. Exactly. Let me add another aspect about names here, and we point this out, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It isn't just the frequency of names that the New Testament gets right, but also the names of specific individuals known to live in the first century. Because non-biblical writers and archaeology confirm the existence and location of more than 30 New Testament characters. And we include this list in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. In other words, these names are in both Gospel and Acts, and these are names found either in archaeology or other sources from the time period, non-Christian sources. Here are some of the names that the New Testament mentions. These are prominent people that also secular history or other writers or archaeology also attest to. Agrippa I, Agrippa II, Ananias, Annas, Artis, Augustus, Bernice, Caiaphas, Claudius, Drusilla, Erastus, Felix, Gallio, Gamaliel, Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, Herod the Great, Herod... Uh, Philip I, Herod Philip II. Imagine getting all the Herods right. The Bible does. Uh, Herodias, James, Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, Judas of Galilee, uh, Licinius, Pilate, Quinerus, Portugus, Festus, Sergius Paulus, and Tiberius Caesar. These are all people that the New Testament names, and they're all found outside the New Testament. So here's the question. How did the New Testament authors, without the aid of modern research tools, get all these names right if they did not have access to eyewitness testimony from the first century? Seems to me it takes more faith to believe in the late dating of the New Testament that liberals assert, without evidence, by the way, than just to follow the evidence where it leads, right back to where Jesus walked in first century Israel. These people were eyewitnesses or they knew eyewitnesses. Otherwise, they couldn't get all this right. Now, this doesn't prove that everything they say is true, okay? This is only one argument that says that they were eyewitnesses and that lends to the authenticity of their testimony. They could, they could have been lying, but it doesn't seem to make any sense that they would because, again, these were all believers in Yahweh. They had no motive to make this up. They had every motive to say it wasn't true. They didn't get any of the three classic uh, motivators that cause people or influence people to sin, sex, money, and power. They didn't get sex by saying Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't get money by saying it happened, and they certainly didn't get power. They got persecuted. So it doesn't make any sense to think they made it up, but there are clues throughout the text that seem to show that they were eyewitness testimonies. Now, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, when Baucom said that the reason that these names are in the New Testament is because some of these names indicate that they were the eyewitnesses of the individual stories in which they occur. Back to Baucom again. Uh, in fact, we could look at it this way. It's not just the frequency of names in the New Testament. The question we're asking now is why are there so many names in the New Testament that seem to be just sort of tangential to the story? They're not even necessary. I mean, there are many unnamed people that Jesus heals, but then there are a few people that are mentioned. Why is that? And here's what Baucom says. 
and see if you agree with what he says here. He says, if the names are of persons well-known in the Christian communities, then it becomes likely that many of these people were themselves the eyewitnesses who first told and doubtless continue to tell the stories in which they appear and to which their names are attached. Attached, And he said, a good example is Cleopas, C-L-E-O-P-A-S, in Luke 24. This is one of the two people with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, I believe. And here's what Baucom says. The story does not require that he be named, and his companion remains anonymous. There seems no plausible reason for naming him other than to indicate that he was the source of this story. He was the source of what's called the tradition. Now, tradition doesn't mean, well, it's, it, it's just something we do. It means that this goes back to an eyewitness. And here's what Baucom says. He is very probably the same person as Clopas. C-L-O-P-A-S, rather than C-L-E-O-P-A-S. In other words, the E is left out. Whose wife, Mary, appears among the women at the cross in John 19.25. Clopas is a very rare Semitic form of the Greek name Cleopas, the name I mentioned earlier that has the E in it. So Clopas doesn't have the E, Cleopas does. And Bauckham says, so rare that we can be certain this is the Clopas who, according to Hegesippus, another historian who writing a little bit later, who, according to Hegesippus, was the brother of Jesus's father, Joseph. In other words, let me translate that for you. Clopas was the uncle of Jesus. Jesus appeared to his uncle on the road to Emmaus, Clopas. And Clopas is the one that Luke names in Luke 24. Because Clopas is the eyewitness telling Luke, this is what happened. That's what Baucom's saying. That's why certain names appear in the New Testament when other names of people who are healed or are somehow part of the story are, go unnamed. You know, the woman who had, for example, had the, 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 the her, she was healed of a blood flow. You remember? She's not named. There are lepers that are not named, but certain people are named. Why are they named? Jarius's daughter. Why is Jarius named? Probably because Jarius was probably known in the early Christian community because that person was an eyewitness to what had happened and had continued to tell the story that Jesus healed his daughter. That's what Balkum is saying. Some names appear for that given reason. Now, there's a lot more that we could talk about here. We don't have time to get into it because we're running out of time. But let me ask you this question. Given this evidence from Dr. Balkin, is it more or less probable that Christianity is true? What do you think? I certainly think it's more probable. I mean, this is just one piece of, of evidence among several other lines of other evidence. It alone doesn't prove the New Testament is true, but no evidence alone proves the New Testament's true. Like a jury in a trial, we have to consider all the evidence and then come to a verdict. What is the best explanation of all the evidence? What is the best explanation that we have early sources, eyewitness details, embarrassing stories, excruciating deaths, embedded confirmation, expected predictions, extra biblical writers, and the explosive growth of the church out of Jerusalem? Seems to me 
The best explanation is Jesus literally rose from the dead. Now, again, if you have an anti-supernatural bias to that, you're going to say it's got to be some other cause. But the evidence points, in my view anyway, to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And we're going to pick up more of what uh, is in this book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, in future broadcasts. We can't do it now because we're out of time, as you can hear. I'm Frank Turek. It's great being with you. Don't forget, I'm down at Grace Community Church this weekend, Sarasota, Florida. Also, don't forget about CIA. We're running out of time. If you want to be a part of CIA this August, go to crossexamine.org and apply. And I'll see you here, Lord willing, next week. God bless.